Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. Well, we have, uh, over the years, uh, I have shared a lot about the resurrection of Christ, and of course, that's why we are here today. But because of the resurrection of Christ, we too, all of those who are followers of Christ, will be resurrected also. And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. Our resurrection is based on his, okay? Um, If uh, he did not raise from the dead, we wouldn't have a chance. We're going to be talking about that today and just going through this plan that God had from eternity past to rescue a people that would be his own for all eternity, We're going to be talking about that today. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can be together today on this glorious Easter morning. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine, the uh, gorgeous uh, time of year this is, Lord, as we see the snow melting, we see... uh, Uh, And anticipate, Lord, uh, the greening of our beautiful state, and especially out here in the lakes area. God, you're a good God to allow us to live in such a beautiful part of the country. And we love you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would be speaking to all of us today as we look at our resurrection as your people because you resurrected first. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you heard about the volcano that erupted in New Zealand? On 2.11 on p.m., December 9th, 2019, about three and a half years ago, Wakari Island suddenly erupted. 47 people were touring the island at the time, 22 of them died. The other 25 suffered serious burns. Netflix did a documentary on the explosion called The Volcano Rescue from Wakari. I found it riveting, amazing story of how many were rescued, many in miraculous fashion. The documentary focused on four people who visited Wakari that fateful day, Pastor Jeff Hopkins was there with his daughter, treating her dad to a tour on on, uh, his 50th birthday. Jeff had just finished his tour, had boarded a boat back to the mainland, and the volcano blew. Matt and Lauren Ure were honeymooning Americans out for an adventure, got more than they bargained for. Matt and Lauren were halfway back to the boat When the volcano blew, instantly the temperature rose to 400 degrees. Can you imagine that? Matt and Lauren took cover behind a rock, but their exposed skin began to boil. The fourth person was Jesse Langford, 
an Australian traveling with his sister and parents. They were right up by the crater when it blew. Jesse set off on a dead run to the beach where he was hoping to get help to rescue his family. Still not entirely sure how he survived, but he did. But there was absolutely no chance of saving his family. The true heroes of this tragedy are a couple of helicopter pilots who managed to land on the island in the midst of all this and evacuate 12 men and women as their skin was peeling off their live bodies. As this was happening, Sue and I are watching this, my wife and I are watching this, and I just stood up and I said, that is a picture of hell, if you've ever seen one. And both of us immediately recoiled at the thought of human beings suffering like that. Revelation 21.8 describes hell like this. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. But here's the good news. This is great news on an Easter morning. Right before this verse, Revelation 21, 6 and 7, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, anyone, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this and I will be his God and he will be my child. Today I want to ask you, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the springs of living water that Christ offers freely to everyone? The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, the first one, of those who have died. Just as Christ rose from the dead on Easter morning, the first one to rise from the dead, in the same way, you can be assured that you will also rise from the dead if you are trusting him. So how does that happen? Well, today we're going to focus on that. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we are given four stages that every true Christian will experience on the road to eternal life. And the first stage is this, lost. You have to realize you're lost before you can be found. Seems obvious, doesn't it? But yet I find this is the greatest stumbling block for many to come to Christ. It's realizing you're lost. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it like this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live 
when you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also among, lived among them at one time, all of us, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now, I've been living with a whole pile of grandchildren this weekend, and I can personally testify that every one of them has a sin nature. <laughs> In fact, I heard it last night. <laughs> Have you ever asked someone when they became a Christian and they will reply to and they reply to you, "Well, I've always been a Christian." Friends, that cannot possibly be true. Because verse 3 says, all of us, that's you and me, all of us, lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature. Recently, I read a biography of Thomas Jefferson. And the whole time I'm reading this book, I'm thinking to myself, will we see Thomas Jefferson in heaven? Jefferson clearly thought he was on the road to heaven. He knew the Bible like the back of his hand, quoted it all the time. And yet, friends, I seriously doubt if he made it. If you ask me why, it's because I see no evidence that he ever saw himself as a lost person in need of a savior. Now his IQ was off the charts. And like Ben Franklin and other founders of our country, Jefferson was given a great classical Christian education. You know, the grammar, logic, rhetoric, the Greek, the Latin, all of that stuff, and then thoroughly immersed in the scriptures. He was surrounded by godly pastors good role models. He mentored many young men. He taught them to cultivate Christian virtues and morals. But he never acknowledges his own inability to live by his own moral code. At the same time that he was condemning slavery, at the very same time, he's sleeping with his slave, Sally Hemings. Historians have questioned this for centuries, but now the DNA evidence shows that it was true. The longer Jefferson lived, the more he revealed his true colors. During his first term as president, when he turned 60, Jefferson came out as a Unitarian. Unitarians deny the Trinity. They deny that Jesus is God himself in the flesh. And the Bible says that is one thing that is a non-negotiable. Because the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord of the universe, 
God in the flesh, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10, 9. You see, Jefferson contended with this three, this same three enemies that every human being contends with. You contend with them, you fight them, I do too. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is our external enemy. The flesh is our internal enemy. And the devil is our infernal enemy. Ephesians 2.2 tells us that we have all rebelled against God by following the ways of this world. This refers to the world system <coughs> that surrounds all of us. We're all subject to peer pressure. It's not just the ones in junior high school. We're all subject to peer pressure. Now maybe you remember those days in school when that desire to fit in was so strong, to be recognized as one of the cool kids. And some, they're willing to virtually sell their soul just to be popular. Now the ringleader of this whole world system is described in verse two, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedience. Who is this? None other than Satan himself. The serpent who slithered into the Garden of Eden promised them a deal they couldn't refuse. Do you remember what Satan promised Adam and Eve? He said, you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. And your eyes will be opened. That temptation was intoxicating. To be like God. To be all-knowing. To be all-powerful. It was so enticing. It was so alluring. That is the impact that Satan has on us. We must not underestimate him. Now the third enemy surfaces in verse 3. It says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature or gratifying the flesh, following its desires and thoughts. That's why the Bible says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says, no one is righteous not even one. Now that has never been a popular belief. Not through all through church history that's never been popular. In fact, back in the 1700s, the Duchess of Buckingham found out about this doctrine. She wrote to a friend, she said, it is monstrous to be told you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. It is highly offensive and insulting. This reminds me of the story of a man who propositioned a young woman by saying, if I give you $10 million, will you sleep with me? And the woman thought for a while and she said, uh, she nodded in agreement, $10 million, I'm, I'd be set for life. Quickly the man replied, how about if I give you $1,000, will you sleep with me? She said, angrily shot back, she said, of course not. What kind of a woman do you think I am? 
And the man calmly replied, we have already established that. Now we're just negotiating the price. There's a little bit of Hitler in all of us, isn't there? The Bible solemnly declares that no one is exempt from falling victim to the cravings of our sinful nature. And this logically means that all of us at one time or another were objects of wrath. A pure and holy God by his very nature simply cannot tolerate the destructive and toxic presence of sin. So the first stage on the road to eternal life is an honest acknowledgement of your lost condition and mine. Jesus cannot save us until we realize that we are utterly unable to save ourselves. And that is why the Bible says, you start with a broken and contrite spirit. That's right, a broken spirit before God. That's where you begin. You and I are sinners in need of a savior. Now this brings us to the second stage on the road to eternal life. You are not only lost, but the good news is you are loved. You are loved. Do you know how much he loved you? Verse four says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. Now, even though that's midway through a sentence, we're going to stop right there and just absorb that just for a moment. The creator, the maker of the universe, the one who spoke trillions of stars into existence in the blink of an eye, that God loves you. And he loves you because the scripture says he is rich in mercy. Let that sink in. The Bible says, 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. Love is at the very core of God's nature. And he longs to live with you and me in a relationship of love for all eternity. You see, Christianity is not just simply checking off a list of beliefs, you know? Do you confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Check. Do you confess that Jesus died on a cross for your sins? Check. Do you confess that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day? Check. Now certainly, Christianity encompasses all of those things, but it's more than that. In reality, you know what it is? It's a proposal of marriage. Let that sink in. When Jesus came to this earth as as our Savior, he was essentially saying to each person on this planet, will you marry me? (laughs) Trevin Wax recently wrote a book called The Thrill of Orthodoxy, which is really about the thrill of knowing God. Uh, Wax simply says this. He says, Christianity is a proposal of marriage. It is not only our joy and responsibility to know the one we marry better and better each day. 
but it is also our responsibility to represent that one as truthfully as possible to an outside world. Can you see why Satan has launched a frontal attack on the institution of marriage today? It's because marriage is woven into the tapestry of Scripture from one end of the Bible to the other. The Bible begins and the Bible ends with a marriage ceremony. First marriage, Genesis chapter 2, is between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The last marriage, Revelation 19, is in the Garden City of the New Jerusalem, where the church, the bride of Christ, all those who truly know Jesus, are married to the groom. The wedding supper of the Lamb. Married to the groom for all eternity. Right now, 2023, God intends for the union of a man and a woman in marriage to be this eternal picture of God's love for his people. So when you get married, we know this, the old you dies, the single you dies, and there is a new you that is united with your spouse. The two become one, and that begins. In the same way, when Jesus invites you to come to him, that invitation is total, just like when you get married. It's intimate. It is life-changing. When you get married, you make a vow to love and cherish your spouse. When you come to Christ, you make a vow to love and cherish Jesus for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, so long as you both shall live. The fact that you are loved by Christ is especially lavish considering the fact that you were totally lost. You see, Jesus did not offer his proposal of marriage to an attractive partner. Rather, he offered his proposal of marriage to someone who was dead in transgressions and sins. We're all unworthy. Pastor Danny's unworthy to be the bride of Christ. But Jesus extends his hand. Nevertheless, he extends his hand. Will you marry me? Have you accepted his proposal? Now the third stage on the road to eternal life is what Jesus offers you. He offers you life. <laughs> A life much richer and deeper and eternal much more than you have right now. So you were lost, you were loved, he offers life. Verse four, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace, free gift, that you were saved. 
And then it says, God raised us up with Christ. Jesus rose from the dead. We too can rise from the dead and be seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, as you may know, I'm a big fan of the Chosen TV series. And uh, let me tell you, if you haven't seen season three, (laughs) it is awesome. They keep getting better every year. Throughout the three seasons, we have seen in this series people coming to Jesus in all kinds of different ways, which is exactly what we see today, right? Each of us are dead in our transgressions and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ. We see in the series, the TV series, one by one, each of the disciples makes a decision to follow Christ. There is something happens that that, that triggers their curiosity, and once they meet Christ, they're changed forever. It's interesting how each of them are broken in their own way, just like us today. The tax collector Matthew, one of my favorite characters, is a money-grubbing tax collector. He's, uh, he's portrayed as struggling with autism in uh, the Chosen series. He is despised by his own people. No one likes a tax collector. But Jesus loves him. And Jesus gives him new life as a follower of Christ. Same thing happens to Mary Magdalene. In fact, that's how the whole series opens. Uh, This is a woman who has been afflicted by demons. Uh, Everyone thinks she's crazy. Everyone avoids her. But once she meets Jesus, she's delivered from these demons. She's made alive in Christ. Same thing happens to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the great teacher. You know, he was like the Pope of Israel, you know? Everybody reveres him. But you know what? He was as lost as lost can be until Jesus has a conversation with him and he is born again. One of my favorite characters is Veronica. Now, she, is, she does not have that uh, name in the scriptures. That name is, has been given to her. And uh, she is the woman who has a blood disorder, been afflicted for 12 long years, and because of her disease, she is ritually unclean. Everyone has to keep their distance from her. Even her family has disowned her. But she hears about Jesus. And she reaches out in a crowd of people and touches his clothes and is instantly healed. Amazing. You can read about that in Mark chapter 5. When Jesus realized, Jesus could feel that there had been power that had gone out from him. And so he asked, he said, who is it that touched me? Now you can imagine the agony this woman was going through because no one was supposed to touch her. No one is supposed to come into contact with such a person or they would become unclean themselves. 
In Mark chapter 5, it says, trembling with fear, she told him the whole truth. She owned up to it. Master, it was me. It was me. You know what Jesus said to her? He said, daughter, 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 your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Isn't that beautiful? The fact that Jesus would address this unclean woman that was not supposed to go near anybody, and he addressed her as daughter. That is so powerful. She was completely isolated, but Jesus accepts her as his own. He says to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Because of her faith, she was not only healed, she was born again. She was made alive. She was saved by God's grace. And just as Jesus resurrected from the dead, Veronica also would be resurrected from being dead in her sins. Best of all, Veronica is granted entry into heaven. For all eternity, she will be with Christ. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're going to visit with her someday. Can I ask you today, have you been made alive in Christ? Have you been born again? You know what? It doesn't happen automatically. Being born into a Christian family does not save you. Going to Sunday school does not save you. Going to church does not save you. Being baptized does not save you. Being confirmed does not save you. There's only one thing that can save you, and that is a living faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what the woman with the blood disorder had. She had faith. The Greek word for faith, the Bible, the New Testament is written in Greek, and the Greek word for faith in the Bible is pastuo. I like to call it the most important word in the universe because you have to have that in order to get to heaven. So it's very important for us to understand just what is that, this pastuo. When the Apostle Paul was in prison and the jailer asked him, what must I do to be saved? Paul answered in Acts 16.31, you have to have faith. You have to have this thing called pastuo. You have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then you will be saved. So what is that? (laughs) Bible scholars have pointed out that this word, faith, belief, Pestuo, it has three components. There is a part of, the, it, it means to have knowledge. There's some things that you have to know. You don't have to know a lot, but you, there are some things you have to know. Uh, there's acceptance, there's agreement that this is true. And then there is experience. You have to experience it, okay? It's not enough to know that Jesus died and rose again. It's not enough to merely accept the fact that Jesus died on a cross for your sin. The devil knows that, okay? The devil knows that Jesus died. He was there. He watched it. The devil knows that Jesus rose from the dead. He was also there and watched that. 
And the devil accepts the fact that Jesus dies, his death pays the penalty for the sins of any who have faith in him. The devil knows that. He accepts that fact. Here's what the devil does not have. The devil will not experience Jesus. The devil will not love and worship Jesus as his Savior and Lord. He was given a chance to do that right at the, at the beginning. All of the angels were given a chance to do that. He did not do that. He declined that opportunity. This is why Jesus taught that the first and greatest commandment is to love God. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. It's experiencing him. Okay? It's not just mental assent and checking off a list of statements. How on earth can we possibly experience eternal life without embracing the first and greatest of the commandments to love God with all of our heart. Now this brings us to the fourth stage. So we have lost, we have loved, we have life. And then the fourth stage is liberty, freedom, a new life of freedom. Liberty is just defined as to be set free. Ephesians 2.8 puts it like this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. You can't conjure it up. It is a gift from God. And it's not by works, lest anyone should boast. I want to ask you today, have you been saved? You say, well, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> and the Greek word, it's important to know just exactly what this word means. The Greek word is sozo, to be saved. It, <coughs> excuse me, it means to deliver out of danger into safety. It means to rescue from destruction. It means to be made whole. Now, if you look back at verse 1, you can see what you're saved from. You're saved from sin and death. Because verse 1 says that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Look at verse 2. You will be saved from Satan the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Look at verse 3. You will be saved from being an object of God's wrath. If you're an object of God's wrath, that means you're heading to hell, okay? You can be saved from that. Now, friends, this is good news. This is, this is really good news, okay? <laughs> Jesus is offering you a deal that you would be a fool to refuse. You can be set free from the four great 
enemies that plagues mankind. Sin and Satan and death and hell. All four of them you can be saved from. I close with this. On October 24th, 1971, late in the fourth quarter, the Detroit Lions were down 28-23 to the Chicago Bears. Chuck Hughes, a 28-year-old wide receiver for the Lions, came into the game, promptly caught a 32-yard pass and was tackled. It was the first pass that Hughes had caught that entire season. Several plays later, 62 seconds left in the game. Hughes suddenly falls face down to the ground, clutching his chest. Medical personnel immediately rush onto the field. Frantic attempts made to revive Hughes, including several attempts to pound on his chest. People in the stadium watched in shocked silence as a stretcher wheels Hughes away. Bears defensive end Ed Obradovich told the press, I knew something horrible had happened because when they were rolling Chuck off the field, one of his arms fell down and his hand was flopping back and forth. Chuck Hughes had suffered a fatal heart attack. Life-saving measures continued in the hospital, but there was no response whatsoever. Unbeknownst to Chuck, he had suffered a previous heart attack. It had been misdiagnosed. The autopsy revealed that one of his arteries was 75% blocked. At 5.34 p.m., Chuck Hughes is pronounced dead, the only NFL player to ever die while on the field until January 2nd of this year. 24-year-old Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin went down after making what appeared to be a routine tackle. Hamlin was in full cardiac arrest. Team trainers rushed on the field. They administered CPR, shocked him with a defibrillator, and as his stunned teammates gathered to pray, Praise God, DeMar successfully revived. He's alive. He's alive. Unlike Chuck Hughes, he came back to life before being rushed off to the hospital. Interestingly, one of those watching on TV that day was Chuck Hughes' widow, now 77 years old praying that history would not repeat itself. Friends, there is a slender thread between life and death. We're reminded of that all the time. The sad fact of the matter is that sin has dealt you and me a fatal blow and we desperately need someone to administer CPR and bring us to life. That's what Jesus did for you. Because of his great love, today God is offering you the opportunity to be made alive, to be saved. Jesus stands ready to administer CPR 
to anyone who has faith in him. Is that you today?